Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that seems to us to be particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Keith Pamakwe on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Helping Humanity, American Policy and Genocide Rescue. It seems pretty safe to say that nobody likes genocide and everyone would like to prevent it. The question, of course, is how to do that. And this is where Keith's book is particularly useful. He reviews a number of cases in which the United States attempted to prevent genocides or ameliorate the suffering of those who were victims of genocidal campaigns. What emerges is a very complex picture. In any given instance, the United States could do some things and couldn't do others. The mix all depended on a great number of factors, such as the strength of the state that was conducting the genocide, the distance of the state from the United States, the current strength of the U.S. military, the political situation within the country, and so on and so forth. There doesn't seem to be any general rule about how a great power like the United States should treat genocide. This is a particularly relevant finding today because the United States, once again, is involved in a quote-unquote, humanitarian intervention, this one being in Libya. Ostensibly, we are there to stop a genocidal or quasi-genocidal campaign. Just how we are going to do this is unclear. It seems to me after reading Keith's excellent book that the right question to ask about genocide is not what we should do, because we know what we should do, stop it, but what we can do within the confines of the current political situation. I think this is a terrific book. It's very significant. I hope that it's widely read. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Keith. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for asking. I should tell our audience that today we have the great pleasure of talking to Keith Pomacoy. He's written a wonderful book called Helping Humanity, American Policy and Genocide Rescue. This is a very important piece of work. And I hope that it is widely read. I hope the publisher will come out with a much less expensive paperback edition because I really do think that there are many people uh, who would benefit greatly from reading the book. It is a revisionist book. It says something uh, new, I think, about American policy over the last uh, century and a quarter regarding uh, mass murder and genocide. That's something that's quite different than what you might read in, in other, shall we call them, more popular books. Uh, I believe that Keith has nailed it, as they say in gymnastics, uh, and his, his case is, is, is extraordinarily compelling. I'll, tell, I'll let you, uh, Keith, tell us what that case is uh, in, in a moment. But first, why don't we uh, start the interview by uh, asking you to say a few words about yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm a, a historian. I have a Ph.D. in American history from uh, the University of Albany. It's part of the SUNY system. And I studied there under uh, H. Peter Crosby, uh, who was my mentor for, uh, for many years. And uh, I was drawn to the study of genocide and mass murder because uh, for many years I found, uh, uh, especially uh, coming of age in the late 1980s and early 1990s, um, I found uh, you know, watching CNN uh, and, and seeing uh, uh, you know, cities destroyed, uh, and, and I think of, of Sarajevo, uh, perhaps uh, uh, most importantly on TV in the, in the early 1990s, and uh, the stories of, uh, of the rape rooms and, uh, and the sexual violence that was taking place in that country and the mass murder, uh, these were particularly haunting for me. 
And uh, these types of things really drew me into the study of uh, what is sometimes a, something of a hor- horrific field to study. Uh, many people ask me, you know, how, how is it that you can study genocide and, and still sleep at night? And, and uh, you know, it, it, you do have to kind of get over the horror of the, of the things that you're reading about. But, uh, but once you do that, I think it's a very important field to get involved in. Uh, it's a growing field. It's, it's a field that is uh, increasingly multidisciplinary, and there are uh, new ideas being introduced all of the time. But, uh, uh, but I, I think it's something that's, that's very, very important in, uh, here in the 21st century as, as we're watching uh, extant campaigns of uh, certainly humanitarian violence or, or humanitarian abuse and humanitarian rescue campaigns in places like uh, Libya today. And, and we can talk about that later if you like. But, uh, but this is something that has, has fascinated me as, as a young adult. And uh, I came to study it uh, at the university level uh, as an adult. Um, I was, uh, I guess I would say I'm a non-traditional student. Um, uh, and, uh, so, so this is something that has really fascinated me and studying under, uh, uh, H. Peter Crosby at the University of Albany, um, I, I found a mentor who was able to really sharpen my thought. Uh, he knew that I was trying to write about some things that, um, uh, uh will be somewhat controversial. And so, um, he, he gave me the benefit of, of his comments. Sometimes I felt like being uh, beaten with a stick a little bit, but still, <laughs> In a way that I want to say, in a way that only he can do, but um, uh, in a in a very uh, you know in a, in a very sometimes humbling way, and and but but always a very helpful way, and uh, so I think it really has helped me to develop uh, as as a historian and uh, to be able to talk about uh, these ideas and, and to present some of these findings in and uh, what I hope is a very balanced way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've succeeded, and I imagine that uh, he is very proud of you. He's, is he still alive? I mean, you. Is, he, he, he is. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he is. He's. Uh, well, I, I won't confess uh, his age, but he remembers he's Norwegian. Yeah. And he he remembers uh, when the, uh, the the German battlecruiser Blucher blew up in uh, uh, outside of Oslo. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would say that's how World War II started for for him. And he is uh, he is a, a, a spry. I mean, he looks uh, twenty or thirty years younger than his age, and uh, he still carries on an active uh, research and, and teaching schedule at the University of Albany. Um, and I think he still has a few graduate students. That's around. great. That's um, really that's really terrific. He, Would it he, that we all could have such a career? Yes. <laughs> well, he, he he speaks in you know when, when he talks about uh, uh, you know death, he says if I die still. So uh, <laughs> uh, he is he he is someone who has some plans for the future. <laughs> uh-huh. So my next question and the one I prepared uh, was uh, how did you come to write this book? And and uh, in a certain sense, you've already answered it. Uh, but do you want to take another whack at it? Yeah, I, I would like to uh, to talk about that. When I was uh, when I was in graduate school, um, uh, Professor Crosby came to me one day with a with a flyer in his hand for a World War II conference, and and he said you should write a paper for this for this conference. It was uh, in a it was close to uh, the University at Albany uh, geographically, and he you know he he said you should you should write a paper. And um, uh, I said, that's interesting. I'll think about it. He said, no. What I meant was, you will write a paper for this conference. <laughs> it will be good for your career. So, uh, so I did. And uh, it was a, uh, a paper um, that was, well, when I started out, I had really held the traditional view, uh, or maybe we would say the, the David Wyman uh, view, of uh, American response to the, to the Holocaust. And that is to say, uh, very little had been done. 
And I thought that perhaps if we, uh, if we looked back through uh, some previous genocidal events, that we might uh, see that there was a pattern or we might see that uh, something had changed during the Second World War. And what I found very quickly as I started to go through the, uh, the, uh, the diplomatic correspondence and memoirs and uh, you know, personal letters of the people involved, and, and I, I looked at the, uh, uh, the events in the, Ar- uh, in the Ottoman Empire during the First World War, often uh, called the Armenian Genocide, uh, and then I also looked at events in uh, Soviet Russia during the 1930s. What I found was that there there was something of a pattern that had emerged, but it, it wasn't really the pattern that uh, many people who accused America of of uh, abandoning or neglecting people uh, in the in the face of genocide had uh, had really highlighted in their works, and that is to say, uh, American uh, foreign policy had often reacted to genocidal events uh, in the 19th and, and 20th century, and those reactions frequently were in the context of uh, as as much diplomacy is. And, and has to be in, in the context of the possible and say what what could realistically be done. And one of the things that I found was that um, American philanthropy, that, and I've started calling this state-associated philanthropy because uh, the groups that I talk about in, uh, in Helping Humanity were sometimes um, uh, official uh, organs of the American uh, government. Um, for instance, during the Spanish-American War, there's a group called the Central Cuban Relief Committee that uh, was part of the State Department. And other times, as in World War I, uh, these were groups that stood outside of, of government, but very much uh, uh, were part of, uh, in, in the small American federal government before the Great Depression, uh, it, it, you often had these public-private partnerships. And, and these philanthropy groups uh, fit into that, into that pattern. And, and so they were very much part of American foreign policy, but I think an overlooked and neglected angle of American foreign policy. And so, uh, so I found it uh, fascinating that these groups had existed, and really they, they stood outside of the historical narrative that, uh, that most people who study genocide are familiar with. So I, uh, I wrote the paper, and uh, I actually ended up winning um, an award for the paper when I was in graduate school. And that paper then turned into um, a doctoral dissertation that has now turned into, uh, into the book. That, uh, and I would agree, I would like to see it come out in paperback at, at a uh, much less expensive price. Um, but uh, but that's that's the genesis of this this work. It started with uh, uh, Professor Crosby uh, insisting that I write a paper, uh, and and once I realized that's what he wanted, I was happy to comply, and uh, and it turned into uh, you know dissertation. Uh, then it was revised. I, it, it's three chapters longer than it was as a dissertation, and uh, and now it's out in uh, in hardback. Um, uh, for a few months now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for telling us the story of the book. It's an interesting one. Um, before we launch into a discussion of the chapters itself and what you find in studying these responses to genocide, I want to talk a little bit about what might be called the historiographical and political context um, because it, it, does, uh, it does inform, I think, a reading of the book. Um, you are, I would say that you are actually um, very kind and gentle with some of the people who have said things different from you, but let's just uh, name names for the fun of it. Uh, Samantha Powers wrote a book about this, and she reached pretty much startlingly different conclusions than you do. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, Samantha Power certainly um, has called American uh, responses to genocide or American foreign policy toward genocide um, a non-response. She's, she's uh, been very strident in her dismissal of American foreign policy. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to name names, as, as it were, but she has um, 
for uh, for the better part of a uh, of a decade now uh, dominated, I think, uh, the kind of the public imagination, and and in some ways uh, even the, uh, the 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 governmental. Uh, understanding of, of what can be done to solve uh, solve genocide, and she's been uh, in the last few months. Uh, there are some people who are starting to uh, to criticize her. Um, I, I think in, in in a very severe and and I think uh, much needed way, because uh, Samantha Power um, has, you know, she's kind of taken the well, she's a journalist and a lawyer, and she's she's taken. Um, Kind of a kind of just a gloss of the history, and she's she's turned it into a very readable story, but it's a it's a readable story that I think doesn't really get into the details of what happened. When you look at um, you know one one of her uh, documents that that she uh, uh, really bases her her claims on early in her work is uh, is a letter that uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote uh, to uh, uh, Samuel Dutton, and Samuel Dutton. Was on the board of directors of the uh, uh, Near East Relief uh, Committee. This was the group trying to help the Armenians in the First World War. And Roosevelt uh, had launched into. By the way, this was in a in a in a book. Uh, this is published in a book called uh, "Fear God and, and Take Your Own Part." That Roosevelt published as part of the uh, preparedness movement during the First World War. And it's uh, this is the uh, uh, the end of a very uh, long book. Uh, and the and this long book was an attack on on Woodrow Wilson, uh, um, and listeners will will remember the media or, or, or many, many people in the media talking about George Bush and, and politicians on the other side saying he's the worst president ever. Well, Teddy Roosevelt was was uh, uh, fond of saying similar things about Woodrow Wilson, and so uh, the, you know, the worst president ever. So. So Roosevelt's book, um, you know, "Fear God and Take Your Own Part," was uh, a call for uh, for you know America to uh, arm in case we went to war. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt thought we ought to go to war to help the British, um, and uh, and it was a polemical attack against Woodrow Wilson. And kind of attached at the very end of this book is this letter to Samuel P. Dutton, where Roosevelt launches into this uh, critique, uh, into this attack of uh, of Woodrow Wilson, uh, and uh, and the important phrase uh, is that if this government had not shirked its duty, uh, and then he he goes on and you know, he talks about Mexico and he talks about the First World War, uh, then it would be you know possible to do so. But really, what Roosevelt is saying, it's not possible. To do anything because America doesn't have the military power in 1916 to go to the Ottoman Empire or to go to um, uh, to Europe um, at all and get involved in the First World War in a very meaningful way. But often this letter is interpreted as uh, Teddy Roosevelt calling American arms, let's go save the Armenians. And that's just not what it is. If you read the whole letter in context, if you look at the book, uh, Teddy Roosevelt did think we should build up our military, but he recognized we didn't have military strength to get involved in World War I in 1916. And Teddy Roosevelt also thought we should get involved in the First World War, but he wasn't calling for an invasion of the Ottoman Empire to save the Armenians. He was calling for an American deployment to uh, to France to fight against the Germans. And, of course, um, uh, in World War I, uh, the, there was this horrible suffering in the Ottoman Empire, and uh, there, there was, uh, uh, you know, a genocide of the Armenians of, uh, and, and of, of other groups. Uh, there have been some resolutions um, uh, coming out of a group I belong to. The, the uh, International Association of Genocide Scholars uh, has now recognized uh, that, yes, the Armenians suffered genocide, but there were also some other groups uh, that suffered genocide as well, and, and including the Greeks. And, and we should be aware of, 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 of their deaths as well. Uh, but 
Roosevelt, uh, you know, when he looked at this, he recognized, yes, this was a tragedy, but the that's uh, uh, kind of the standard American view was that this was a tragedy that had an awful lot to do with the war, that had uh, something to do with, with German policy, and if we defeated Germany, well then, uh, uh, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, would no longer have the power to resist European armies and would no longer have the power to kill its own civilians. So as far as Roosevelt was concerned, the answer to um, the, uh, the, uh, the Armenian genocide was stopping Germany. So, so even if you, uh, you read his letter in a very liberal way, you find that he's not calling for an invasion of the Ottoman Empire. He's calling for an invasion of, of Germany. And he, he himself recognized that that would take uh, a long time because uh, Wilson hadn't built up America's military. And so when you look at, at Samantha Power's work, uh, which you know she won uh, uh, the, the Pulitzer Prize for. Um, she she really starts with this and uh, and follows this kind of view that America had not done uh, really anything to to stop genocide in its long history. And I think uh, at best it's an unkind account. Uh, at worst, uh, it, it neglects many very important details as uh, as she goes through her work and. Um, uh, she, you know, she's a reporter and, and a lawyer, and, and so she's probably not uh, as familiar with some of the sources as uh, some other disciplines might be. Yeah, you are too kind. Um, the word that comes to <laughs> mind when I think of that book is wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <Well. laughs> um, because, you know, e- even, I don't know. Uh, sure. you know, I'm not an I'm, I'm not an American historian. I don't study American foreign policy, but I know for a fact. I mean, you can just go to the Hoover Museum here in Iowa. And Hoover was uh, was was. Um, very involved in philanthropic efforts to yes. uh, help displaced people, to help uh, people uh, who are downtrodden, and, and and almost everything he did was uh, was what we would call private. Um, yes. In, yes. In, in 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 working on these problems, he was he was totally focused on it. Uh, in fact, he became famous. His star rose politically uh, because uh, he, I think, headed the commission that was. Um, was trying to help displaced persons in, in World War One. Yeah, the food relief. Program, uh, the food yeah. relief program. Yeah. So it, it just seems to me. I, I guess I don't really even understand. I, I don't know. These these books always <laughs> confuse me. I, I, was it vetted? I mean, did they show it to historians? Um, did they? I don't know. What did they do? What did the Pulitzer Prize Committee do when they looked at this book? Did they ask anyone whether it was correct? I, you know, again, it's it's very frustrating for me. Uh, you know, as somebody who works in a kind of obscure area of history and. And as a professional historian, to think that this kind of stuff could get out and then be lauded uh, when uh, no one had really done due diligence on it. Now, I'm not saying you say any of those things. You, you don't. You're, you're very kind. But, I, I, you know, I, when I looked at it, I was just, I, it, was, it was just hard for, for me to stomach. Um, well, this book came out um, uh, it, when I was writing. I was two years into the dissertation when her book came out. And um, A Problem from Hell. And I just happened to wander into a bookstore and there it was staring at me and of course this you know for uh, for a young graduate student, oh, yeah. this, this is a heart-stopping event because if she said what i was going to say well then i would have to start over <laughs> so, right. fortunately she didn't use the sources i used and her conclusions and her interpretation are, are very different well i think what you have to say is not as sexy to the um you know the, yes. the washington and uh, upper east side new york liberal elite who like to point fingers and say that uh, you know American power is almost always used for evil and never does anything very good, uh, and she certainly hasn't. She's ridden that to um, pretty high places in that establishment. So she, she it's, has. It's, it's hard to blame know, her. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's a staffer on the National Security Council, right? Uh, these days, and I'm sure she's had some influence over the Obama administration's policy toward Libya. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I. Some people write books that have um, a political agenda, and uh, often that is the case with uh, with people who write genocide books because what they really want, and you can understand this, and and you can be sympathetic to this. What they really want is to find a solution to genocide, and uh, and that's not a bad goal. And and I don't fault Samantha Power for wanting to find a solution to genocide. Um, the, if I were to make a criticism um, of, of Samantha Power and, and many, many other authors, when they do this, uh, when, when they look for the solution to genocide, uh, they, uh, they often uh, neglect history. And, and, and I like to think that there is a place for, for history that is written uh, to study history uh, in the academy still today. And that what we really should be doing as historians is following the evidence and drawing conclusions from it. And if those conclusions are sometimes uh, uh, unkind or, or not the conclusions that we want, so be it. That's that's where the evidence goes, and I think in uh, in uh, Samantha Power's case, the uh, the evidence um, uh, would point her in another direction if she had really um, gone through all of that. Uh, well, that, of that, yeah, and that, and that suggests that she was uh, interested in the evidence. Um, and and you know, I, I don't know. I know a lot of lawyers, and and what I <laughs> what I know about them is that before they start any argument, they've already made their judgment. In other words, well, they're not they're not using the evidence to find out something new. They know what they want to prove, and they muster evidence in order to prove that thing. Yeah, I, I don't, don't think that's what yeah, historians do. Yeah, I, I don't want to you know criticize personalities too much, or or you know uh, suggest that there were motivations here, uh, or or conclusions that were uh, arrived at before the evidence was there. But, I will. Uh, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problem with that. I remember a conversation that I had in the. Uh, late 90s with Michael Walzer, who's at the Institute for Advanced Study and famous uh, sort of liberal. And he he had decided that it would be a really good thing if um, we had the Sixth Fleet take the Marines to Serbia and simply just take Serbia over. This I'm is like, how the hell are you going to do that, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he he uh, he has argued for a, for a just war theory and and uh, has, has become quite uh, well known for that. But uh, you know, this is something that really emerged at the end of the Cold War, and it wasn't just on the left. It, this was on the on the right as well, where you get uh, more and more um, uh, intelligent, educated people who have uh, something of an understanding of international affairs and and history, who started arguing that in the absence of um, uh, of the great power politics of the Cold War and and uh, uh, and you know the demise of the second superpower and 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 we didn't go back to the old uh, uh, you know, multipolar world order, uh, you know when when you just had this American power that reigned supreme, and you could turn on your TV uh, during Gulf One and watch uh, 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 precision guided munitions flying down chimneys, and uh, th- there was just this sense that uh, suddenly military force could do great things. And could do great things uh, uh, with al- almost without cost, and uh, and so you find that uh, the right, uh, some people call them the neoconservatives, the neocons, uh, started looking at um, uh, you know post post Cold War the sense that we uh, you know we could really abandon what the first George Bush did, and, and that is to say, fight uh, a war for very limited means, and instead adopt uh, very broad uh, goals for the, uh, for the second war uh, in Iraq uh, that, you know, the, that uh, George W. Bush launched. 
and uh, not just uh, not just to uh, affect some type of power change and to replace uh, you know one uh, dictator with uh, with someone who was perhaps uh, friendlier uh, to uh, to our side, but but the uh, the right decided well perhaps we can spread democracy and this would be a good thing, and uh, perhaps if it's successful it would be a good thing, but but it has proven to be very difficult indeed. And on the other side, uh, the left, and I think Samantha Power certainly is in this school, um, is uh, inclined to think that uh, we can use our military might with, uh, uh, with with very little effort to achieve great humanitarian ends. And uh, you know, you have the example in Libya today that I think has not gone as smoothly as perhaps some people in the administration would would hope for. And the question is, uh, I think that that ought to have been asked at the beginning: What is the solution that you're hoping for? Uh, you know, find me a, a a substitute for for Muammar Gaddafi, who is uh, you know a Democrat. I, I don't know that there's one there. Um, and and you see this uh, this logic growing out of uh, uh, kind of the um, uh, the horrors of the 1990s when American policy in Somalia didn't play out as well as it was hoped and in the former Yugoslavia it didn't play out as well as it was hoped. And, and even though it's often uh, uh, touted as uh, a great success, the American war in Kosovo, I would argue, was not successful in preventing humanitarian violence for a number of weeks. And, uh, and, and that wasn't helpful to the people who lived in, in Kosovo. Mm-hmm. So, there are, uh, you know, so there are some very real problems you have to look at with these things. I mean, it, it seems to me, as somebody who teaches a, a military history class and has done some military history, that the only way you could reach the conclusion that a very powerful military like that of the United States could go in and clean a situation up like Kosovo or, or let's say, the Cambodian genocide is uh, on the basis of a complete misunderstanding about what militaries do and how they are deployed and what they can accomplish. I, j- I just can't, for the life of me, understand how anybody could say, "Yes, uh, we will, um, we will send uh, several divisions of of Marines um, into Kosovo, and then we'll clean things up." It just doesn't work like that. I, I, think, I think that's fair because there are cultural issues here and there are power issues here that uh, no military really is prepared to, uh, to, to deal with, and, and really you can't. The, the numbers are just against, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, even if you send two, three divisions in, which of course America really doesn't have the power to do that Mm-mm. in most places, uh, the the population numbers uh, are just so large that that these these men are so outnumbered. Without some cooperation from the local population, there's really not much that uh, uh, that the military can do. And he, you know, I've been critical of uh, of the United Nations in my book as well. But uh, you know, Brian Urquhart, who was involved in these. Uh, in peacekeeping for for most of his career at the UN, um, you know one thing I'll, I'll give him credit for: uh, he recognized that peacekeeping was a a very limited endeavor that required the cooperation of uh, of the parties involved, and in that way it could be very effective. And uh, uh, and I think here was someone who was involved in um, uh, in trying to make the world a better place who recognized the power realities. And so when, when he talked about peacekeeping, he very much recognized that these were, these were peacekeepers. They, were, they weren't peace enforcers. And, uh, and you couldn't take a UN force and, and, and drop it in somewhere and, and get involved in the fighting and, and try to do something meaningful because that really didn't reflect the, the power relationships uh, in, in these areas. It was mm-hmm. just too difficult to do. Yes. Well, I think I've belabored this point. So uh, <laughs> let's move on to the book itself and talk about the cases. Um, the one that was most interesting for me and one that I was surprised to see uh, was uh, the American war with Spain and particularly yes. the activities in Cuba. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you included that case 
and uh, what happened there in terms of, uh, I guess, mass murder. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to convince um, uh, historians, especially historians of the Spanish-American War, um, that <clears throat> this is, is more important uh, as a case study in terms of humanitarian rescue than, than perhaps from the context of imperialism or, uh, or, or a simple uh, military operation, because uh, we have a, a very, very significant example of uh, uh, humanitarian rescue. Now, you mentioned Michael Walzer. Walzer doesn't think this uh, counts as a humanitarian war. Uh, but whether it, it was a humanitarian war or not, I think even if we set that aside, there is still a humanitarian campaign that is that is part of this struggle. And when you look at this, you have um, you have a, uh, an insurrection on the island of Cuba. Now, uh, uh, the Cubans I, I, is perhaps uh, incorrect to refer to the inhabitants of, of Cuba in 1898 necessarily as Cubans. Some of them uh, would have identified themselves as Spanish uh, in the same way that many Americans in 1775 and 76 would have thought of themselves as English. Um, but of course, but also there were uh, there were Cuban patriots uh, and nationalists uh, who would have thought of themselves as Cubans as well. So it's there's something of a complicated struggle on the island, and there uh, were atrocities that were traded back and forth between uh, the, the Cuban insurrectionaries who called themselves the Cuban Liberation Army uh, and the Spanish Army. And the Spanish Army was assisted by um, uh, by a, a militia from Cuba. So you have Cubans fighting on both sides sides of this. But the the Spanish government decided. Um, to put uh, the Cubans who were uh, feeding the Cuban Liberation Army into camps that they referred to as reconcentration camps. And, and in these camps, uh, you have, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a, a jungle uh, uh, atmosphere. Uh, it's very warm. Uh, there's an absence of uh, food and, and medical care. You have um, uh, people dying from starvation and from disease in large numbers. Now, uh, the numbers are, uh, are interesting because there's, there's two sets of numbers you want to look at. The numbers of Cubans who die um, are probably in the neighborhood of 170,000 people. The population of Cuba was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 1.5 million. So it's a sizable portion of, um, of the, the island's population, even though it's, it's not uh, a, a number in, in the context of millions. Still, 170,000 innocent civilians is a, is a pretty significant loss. Now, the uh, American press had exaggerated these numbers, uh, as I think is well known. And uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, most Americans thought that about 400,000 Cubans had actually died. The number is probably closer to 170,000. But still, there's a very real humanitarian crisis here. And when you look at American policy within uh, and, and, and the McKinley administration, uh, McKinley you know, he hesitates before he takes America to war. And in fact, his, his predecessor, uh, uh, President Cleveland, had also not really wanted to go to war over Cuba. Both presidents had wanted to find some type of solution to this crisis short of war. Uh, and when uh, that, that really uh, and they didn't want to take over uh, Cuba for uh, for America, they didn't really want to see Cuba free uh, because uh, with the, the, the views of the time, they thought that there would be a race war that would uh, uh, erupt in Cuba. And uh, so, so they, they had a difficult time finding a policy solution here. And really, it's, it's only as the humanitarian crisis on the island gets much worse in the summer of 1897 that you find the McKinley administration taking a, a much harder line with uh, uh with the spanish 
government on this. Now, uh, even Cleveland uh, had uh, had warned the Spanish that uh, in his last message to Congress that there is only a limited amount of time that the Spanish had to to solve this crisis because he said the dictates of humanity would force America to act. And what I argue is that as as we go to war, as America goes to war in 1898, there are many policy motivations that that uh, lead the McKinley administration uh, to this moment. Uh, some Americans wanted to take over Cuba. Some Americans wanted a naval base in Cuba. Some Americans wanted to free Cuba. We wanted to protect our trade. We were upset uh, that uh, uh, you know people had been uh, you know uh, the word of the time was outraged as say uh, women were raped. Uh, so so there were many many motivations uh, and certainly uh, commercial interests were in there. But if if you look at the diplomatic correspondence, what you find is that. Um, uh, American policy came, became more and more focused on the humanitarian crisis and, and started telling the Spanish that. Uh, by, certainly by uh, uh, October, November 1897, uh, you get pretty strong messages to the Spanish. And then again, after the turn of the year, uh, you, see, uh, you see Americans starting to really focus on the humanitarian issue. And as we march off to war, even though the, the USS Maine has exploded and even though you've had this insulting De La May letter, uh, as the McKinley administration is is talking to the Spanish, what it's telling the Spanish is, look, you've got to stop killing uh, the Cubans. That's what's really pushing the McKinley administration forward. And yes, all of these other motivations are there as well. I don't I don't want to discard them. What I think we need to do is is rework the uh, uh, the humanitarian crisis uh, into the overall understanding of American policy. Now, once you go to war, you find that the uh, United States Navy and the United States Army. Uh, both had war plans that called for uh, a delay of the invasion of Cuba. The Navy wanted to invade Puerto Rico first and then starve uh, the Spanish on Cuba into surrender. Uh, the Army wanted to uh, take, uh, uh, take the regular Army, which was very small, and land in Cuba, but then wait all summer during the hot, uh, wet season uh, in Cuba and just, just wait while uh, the National Guard was trained up to uh, um, a more proficient standard and then use uh, and then once once the summer ended uh, in late September, uh, then take over the island. And both of these scenarios, the naval, the Navy scenario and the Army scenario, would have uh, left uh, Cuba blockaded by the Navy for for months during the hot season, and untold thousands of Cubans would have died. William McKinley wouldn't have it, and McKinley overruled uh, his uh, his military commanders. Uh, you know, and, and of course, as a military historian, you'll know this happens sometimes. Sometimes there are political needs that a president has to deal with that are more important than military needs. And McKinley's political need was to get an army into Cuba as soon as possible and to stop the dying in Cuba. And and he does that. And it's uh, it's I think very significant that he overrules his military chiefs in order to do that. And uh, and the army uh, that went to Cuba was wasn't ready to go to war, uh, but uh, McKinley sent them in anyway in an effort to, uh, to get involved in this. And, and I think when, when you look at this case study, uh, it gives you a great example of what can be accomplished with, uh, with uh, military force and what, what can't be accomplished. Uh, America goes into Spain in part because it's uh, very close to, uh, to Florida. 
and uh, excuse me, into Cuba because it's very close to Florida. And America has the military uh, power necessary to win this war quickly, more or less painlessly. Although uh, as we approach World War One, Americans thought about the losses in in in, uh, in Cuba in 1898, and uh, um, and and very effectively. If this had been a struggle in Spain, if this had been a struggle in Armenia and Turkey in in 1898, America would not have had the power to do what it does on uh, on the island of Cuba uh, here. So so it's very significant that way. It's also significant because we see a national campaign uh, that was designed to raise money uh, and 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 raise food. You know, get collect food and medicine and clothing to help the Cubans who are being uh, who are being killed in these camps. Now, it's interesting. Americans were very, very supportive of, of the Cubans. Uh, but when the Cuban Liberation Army uh, committed atrocities, Americans were, were not terribly interested. So so America did adopt very much a, a one sided view uh, in our uh, in our kind of preconceived notion of what was taking place. Americans saw this as uh, colonized people fighting against uh, a European overlord. Uh, in, in fact, uh, for many Americans, this was uh, the Cuba's version of the American War for Independence. Uh, so, so when we when we started raising money to to help the Cubans, it really was to help the Cubans who were being killed by the Spanish, and, and we kind of forgot about the other abuses that took place. And uh, uh, the uh, the State Department donated money to this campaign. Uh, William McKinley called for for funds starting in December of 1897, and by early January, we have food shipments going to Cuba. Uh, the railroads agreed to ship the the food free of charge. Uh, 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 ships often were donated for this cause. And you have a national effort uh, that is headed up by Clara Barton uh, from the Red Cross. And, mm-hmm. and the Red Cross will tell you that Clara Barton was something of a saint. And, uh, and, and I don't want to criticize Clara Barton, but uh, she was also rather imperious and uh, uh, somewhat dictatorial in, uh, in, in the way that she ran things. And Clara Barton also had political needs in this struggle. And yes, she wanted to first, you know, help the Cubans, but she also wanted to make sure that the Red Cross enjoyed a place of primacy among American uh, philanthropic organizations. And she used her connections on Capitol Hill to shut down competing organizations that were trying to raise money for the Cubans. And when she she went to Cuba uh, to to try to feed the Cubans, this was before America goes to war. Uh, she brought with her a very famous American uh, publisher by the name of Louis Klopsch. And, and Klopsch um, was uh, the publisher of the, the New York Christian Herald. The, the name of the, his newspaper ten, tends to uh, change a little bit. The Christian Herald Tribune, sometimes you'll, you'll see it listed as. And, uh, but this, this was the largest uh, religious newspaper published in English uh, in the entire world. And Klopsch used his newspaper to raise money to help people throughout the 1890s and, and beyond. And, uh, and he had a habit of going to the scene of famine or scenes of massacre personally to superintend the distribution of, of relief. And so Klopsch went with, with Clara Barton down to Cuba, and he brought with him a pocket full of cash. And he started handing out money to, <laughs> you know, just, just uh, handing out money to, uh, to starving Cubans. And, and Clara Barton recognized something. That uh, you know, if this wasn't, if aid wasn't done properly, uh, if it wasn't superintended properly, then then there was a tremendous potential for for corruption, and and she just wouldn't have this. And and she uh, uh, shall we say she prevailed upon Louis Klopsch to turn over his cash to her, and to get get on a boat and go back to New York. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> so. 
you know, so uh, she was, uh, you know, Clara Barton, you, you, ha- you have to respect this is a very, very important woman. I think her, her impact on American foreign policy has, has been neglected. I think she was, uh, you know, if you step outside of kind of the traditional State Department uh, foreign policy um, uh, uh, you know, employees, you have to recognize that many presidents used uh, private citizens. President Obama clearly is doing that to send to send uh, diplomatic messages. And in the 1890s, Clara Barton was was one of those individuals. And I, I think her her impact on and her influence on American foreign policy has been somewhat overlooked. And, and, and people need to take a second look, uh, especially as um, uh, feminist historians spend more time looking at uh, women in history. I think Clara Barton's role in foreign policy needs to needs to get a second look here because mm-hmm. she, she does something very important throughout the 1890s Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh but you know but she runs this campaign and she does it in in what we would recognize as a modern efficient way uh the uh, the funds are accounted for down to the last uh penny uh we know who sent the money in we know what it was spent on and uh there was a very thorough accounting and and she didn't spend it on things like uh like a staff uh you know she donated uh, people donated their time and uh and it was done uh virtually without corruption Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a very very efficient uh campaign now it's different Difficult to bring food into Cuba before the war. The, the the you know the war still you know before America invades. You still have the insurrection taking place. There's an absence of transport. Uh, you know the, the the mules and the and the horses on the island. Many of them had been consumed uh, by uh, by starving civilians. So uh, so it's a it's a difficult campaign. And of course it's the return of normality that uh, that stops the dying in in Cuba. But. But I would argue that the Spanish-American War is very much a progressive struggle. Americans who were fighting for progressive reform at home applied those ideas to American foreign policy. Uh, certainly McKinley had a hand in this. And uh, and you see that this is a war that has a very re- real humanitarian cause, not not the single cause, but it's certainly on the list. And uh, after the war, you see an effort to reform Cuba, even though uh, you have uh, uh, American imperialism uh, in the form of uh, uh, the, the Cuban constitution staying behind. You also have roads and hospitals and orphanages, uh, healthier conditions. And, and this is very much uh, part of the American progressive effort of, uh, of this time period. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to uh, the next case, or actually let's do the next two cases. In, in these instances, uh, one being the uh, Armenian genocide and the yes. other being the uh, Holodomor, as it's called in in Ukrainian, the uh, the terror famine uh, that occurred in the Soviet Union yes. around 1930. Um, these areas are uh, quite distant from uh, America. That is uh, Armenia on the one hand and, and Ukraine on the other. Uh, could you talk a little bit about oh, how Americans responded to these two uh, instances? Yeah. <laughs> I think these are two great case studies that illustrate both uh, the limits of power uh, but also uh, they illustrate what can be done when we don't want to use military force. And, and I think recently America has been criticized for, for not getting involved in, military, uh, in a military way in, in places like uh, Sudan. And, uh, and, and I think uh, sometimes you can do an awful lot with, uh, you know, with, with soft diplomacy, with, uh, with philanthropy. And you see that especially during the First World War in the Ottoman Empire. Um, in 1915, America's ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, uh, Henry Morgenthau uh, Sr. in this case, uh, his, his son was uh, also quite, uh, quite famous, uh, certainly for his activities in the Second World War. But Morgenthau uh, recognized very early that 
uh, there was a humanitarian crisis uh, in the Ottoman Empire and that uh, the Ottomans were attempting to uh, exterminate, as he said, an, an entire race. Uh, but certainly they had targeted the Armenians and, and clearly uh, other groups as well. And uh, Morgenthau uh, pulled uh, Americans uh, on the scene, uh, American diplomats and American missionaries. There were some businessmen in the area as well, but, but primarily we're talking about diplomats and missionaries. Uh, and he asked them, you know, what, what can we do to end this? See, there was also the, an exchange uh, with uh, the State Department, uh, first William Jennings Bryan and then Robert Lansing uh, in Washington. Uh, and and uh, Morgenthau asked, you know, for suggestions uh, and, and the, the you know, state couldn't come up with any suggestions. And uh, the Americans on the scene uh, rejected uh, military intervention. They rejected a protest, a formal, a formal note. Uh, and uh, Morgenthau concluded that, uh, you know, that the missionaries feared that the matter would have to run its course. As I say, there's not really much that we can do here. And what Morgenthau was able to, to start in the Ottoman Empire, and then uh, other people carried on his work when, when he went back to the United States, was a tremendous philanthropic effort. As Armenians were deported, and, and deported, uh, I, I think many people will recognize, uh, deported here is code for uh, not only pushed out of their homes, but oftentimes exposed to uh, uh, torture, to rape, to mass murder, to starvation. Uh, so, so deportation here is very much code for, for a genocidal activity uh, in the First World War. But as, as the, the survivors made it to uh, either camps in, uh, in the Syrian and Mesopotamian deserts or uh, into uh, – some of them had fled into the Caucasus mountains, uh, the Caucasus, and, uh, uh, and, and were then behind, uh, behind the Russian lines, uh, the people who had, uh, had survived deportation were cold. Uh, they were starving. Uh, they needed medical care. And Morgenthau uh, recognized that if Americans started raising money uh, and, and sent it to him, that he could he could feed some of these people, he could clothe some of these people, and and you have a great work here that was possible uh, only because the United States didn't go to war, and only because the United States didn't push the Ottoman Empire in uh, in kind of uh, in making statements of moral outrage that wouldn't really help uh, the situation on the ground. And so, uh, so Morgenthau was involved in a group that, that eventually called itself Near East Relief. And Near East Relief uh, raised uh, well over $100 million in an effort to, to feed people in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the records indicate that about 400,000 people were fed uh, in the Caucasus and about 300,000 people were cared for in, uh, within the Ottoman Empire in uh, Syria and Mesopotamia and that uh, these, uh, these groups took care of 130,000 orphans uh, in Near East Relief orphanages. And there are some fascinating pictures uh, and some of them come out of uh, uh, Soviet Russia at, immediately after World War One, of, uh, of orphans uh, by the thousand who have been lined up uh, in uh, in formations on the ground, uh, stars or uh, uh, you know NER letters on the ground, and uh, you have these aerial uh, photographs of uh, you, know, you just all of a sudden you see a star or mm -hmm. NER, and as you look at it, you recognize well these are thousands of children sitting there, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's just you know so so America. And philanthropy very much was responsible for saving the lives of at least 700,000 people, uh, uh, perhaps more. Nearest Relief uh, claimed to have saved the lives of a million people. And uh, as, as I said, this is possible because Americans uh, were allowed to stay within the empire during the war. 
uh, if there had been a declaration of war, if there had been a formal protest, that probably would not have been the case. Mm -hmm. Even after uh, the Ottoman Empire broke relations with the United States, uh, Americans were able to stay by attaching themselves to uh, Swedish mm -hmm. embassies. So, so you have a tremendous, tremendous work that takes place here during the First World War, just after the First World War, and uh, really, it's it's a neglected part of um, uh, of American history because saving the lives of seven hundred thousand people is is something worth mm -hmm. worth bragging about. You know, this this was a foreign policy success. Now, if uh, uh, if you were a witness to this, uh, you know, uh, perhaps you wouldn't want to celebrate because you didn't save everyone's life. And in fact, there were tremendous horrors. Over a million people died uh, uh, it, dur during this, uh, you know, during the war here. And, uh, so, so there's many things to be said about, uh, you know, Morgenthau talked about, uh, Turkey as a place of horrors for him. Well, certainly he felt that way, but not because he didn't do all that he could do. And, and, and other people, uh, around him did as much as they could to try to save the lives of, uh, of people. So, so I think in that perspective, it's a very, very significant case study that illustrates what can be done short of war. And it also tells us why public statements or it's a great example of why public statements that uh, do uh, that, that don't do anything practical are very dangerous in diplomatic uh, uh, in, in diplomatic speak because uh, it, it would have offended the Ottomans mm -hmm. without without accomplishing anything for the Armenians. So, mm -hmm. so in that case, it's it's a uh, it's a particularly interesting uh, field. Now, as far as the, uh, American military might, America just did not have um, uh, the power to invade the Ottoman Empire in 1915, 1916. Uh, in fact, when America goes to war in 1917. Uh, uh, the America's military is so weak that it takes about a year to uh, to build a sizable field army and deploy it to uh, to uh, to France. So uh, to, so to think that America could uh, somehow militarily engage engage the Ottoman Empire and save the Armenians, I, I think is is a mistake uh, uh, right at right at the outset. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the, the Ukraine provides uh, and 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 as in the Ottoman Empire, we, we tend to speak of ethnic groups. But really, these events transcend uh, ethnic groups. And uh, in the Ottoman Empire, you have uh, multiple groups who are targeted. The same thing is true in, in Soviet Russia. Now, uh, some people like to argue that uh, Stalin did not commit genocide because he, he uh, killed people who were not uh, part of the four uh, groups uh, that, are, that are listed in the Genocide Convention. Um, but I think many people within the genocide community uh, reject that on its face and, and recognize that this Stalin was a genocidal figure. Uh, you know, killing, uh, mass murdering uh, political and social groups, um, uh, you know, most genocide historians will say that, that counts as genocide. In fact, uh, political and social groups were part of the original genocide definition, and these terms were dropped mm -hmm. simply so, so we could get uh, the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Bloc, to sign right. the, the Genocide Convention. Uh, well, in the Ukraine, you have uh, a paranoid dictator, Stalin, uh, who had launched uh, a, a policy of, of destruction for for a number of reasons, uh, some of which were political and, and social. He wanted to weaken the power of the Ukrainians. Uh, he wanted to uh, 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 collectivize and socialize uh, the farms in the area. Uh, he wanted to get rid of Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, but he also wanted to sell some of the grain uh, that the Ukrainians were producing uh, to fund uh, the industrialization drive uh, within the Soviet Union. And in the 1920s and 30s, uh, if you want to talk about military power, uh, the Red Army was huge. Uh, this was um, a, a massive military force, certainly the, the largest in Europe. 
And you know, by the time we get to um, uh, uh, the World War II period, the Soviet army has more tanks than the rest of the world combined. Um, and, and, and in part, that's because the Soviets expect uh, the West to put aside its differences, unite, and, and try to overthrow throw communism. So you have a paranoid regime that is also a militarily strong regime. And America doesn't have diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union uh, under, uh, well, going back to, uh, you know, to the founding of the Soviet Union into, into 1933, uh, America still uh, was dealing with the old, uh, uh, the old white regime from, from the revolution, the, the remnants of Kerensky's government. And uh, so in this situation, there's very little that can be done. Stalin does not bow to pressure. Stalin wouldn't admit that anything was taking place. Uh, America didn't have the power to uh, to intervene militarily. And in the 1930s, 1932, 1933, Americans were focused on the Great Depression, not on uh, international adventurism. And it was very, very difficult for, uh, for Ukrainian groups in the United States or for humanitarian groups to build the same type of public reaction that had happened in 1898 or in 1915 uh, or really throughout the 19th century. Uh, this is an event that passes not quite without notice in the public, but, but there's not a strong reaction. And Franklin Roosevelt recognizes that there's not really – uh, anything you can do with Stalin. I mean, uh, w- without getting rid of him, uh, you can't quite uh, you you can't quite figure out what to do with this guy. How do you influence his policy? And of course, the the standard joke of of the 1930s uh, was uh, you know what what's the difference between uh, Hitler and Stalin? You tell me. <clears throat> the the size of their mustache. Yeah. So <laughs> you know both. Both dictators, both horribly cruel mass murderers, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt was the first to recognize that both men were evil, and he said so publicly more than once. So, uh, so you have a situation where, uh, in terms of uh, a state response, there's very little that can be done, and, and Roosevelt recognizes it, he admits it, and uh, instead of uh, again, there's there's no protest here. Instead of sending a formal note, uh, uh, what Roosevelt does is he extends uh, diplomatic relations to to Soviet Russia. Uh, we have a normalization of of, uh, of our relations here, and this is part of um, Franklin Roosevelt's worldview, where uh, he wants the Soviet Union uh, 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 back in in connection with the economy. Uh, as a you know, kind of normal trading relations, so we can help to end the Great Depression, and also he wants diplomatic relations because uh, World War II was uh, was perhaps on the horizon already. Franklin Roosevelt was concerned about world peace right from uh, his inauguration, and uh, Roosevelt wanted to work with Stalin to help to keep the Chinese uh, safe from the Japanese. In fact, just to keep the Japanese uh, in check. And uh, so in the face of a situation where uh, you couldn't help the Ukrainians, Roosevelt decides, well, if you can't help the Ukrainians, maybe we can help end the Great Depression and maybe we can stop Japanese aggression or at least at least limit Japanese aggression. And uh, so he, he makes this decision. And I think it's, it's also a very interesting case study because it, it gives you a sense of, uh, of what can be accomplished. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and when little can be accomplished, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is fond of saying, uh, you, you know, uh, protests are, uh, you know, not followed up by action or worse than useless. And, uh, and I think Franklin Roosevelt would have agreed with that as well, mm-hmm. that uh, if, you, if you can't accomplish something meaningful, then perhaps uh, it's best to stay silent. Mm-hmm. Well, the situation was, of course, you point this out in the book, uh, complicated uh, by the fact that there were Americans uh, of some import uh, in the Soviet Union denying that anything was going on. 
Yes, there's a famous uh, there's a famous exchange in the New York Times uh, between uh, uh, the American uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner for 1932 uh, for for journalism in, in Russia, uh, Walter Duranty, and uh, and uh, a journalist from from Wales, Gareth Jones, and and Jones uh, insisted that uh, there was a famine taking place and that millions of people were dying. Uh, but Walter Durante, uh, reporting from from Moscow, uh, refused to acknowledge this. Uh, insisted nothing was taking place. Insisted that he had toured these areas, and uh, any uh, you know any uh, talk of uh, famine was greatly exaggerated. And uh, in the, in the face of this exchange in in the newspapers, it's very it was very difficult to yeah. build uh, some type of public reaction mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Durante eventually admitted that there had been a famine, but he said, "Well, it's but it's over now." So uh, great, you know. So it's, it's over now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Pulitzer Prize is taking a real beating in this episode. It is. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I'm never going to get one. I was, gonna, I was just going to say that. I, I don't think mine's coming now. Yeah. <laughs> I blame um, you, though, Marshall. Yeah. So let's go on to the um, the next case in, in your book, and, and that is um, the, the Holocaust. Yes. Uh, what did um, what did the American government and uh, American, I guess, society do to um, to try to? Uh, I don't know what verb to use here. I'm not, not stop, but at least ameliorate the suffering of. Yeah, of, ameliorate. I would yeah. say react to. Yeah. You know, this is uh, this is an interesting uh, period uh, for for genocide studies because uh, w- when you look at any case study uh, in the world, not you know, if you look at every case study in the world, uh, more has been written about uh, the uh, the events of World War II that uh, were directed toward the Jews uh, than really any other genocide uh, in, uh, in in history. Uh, there's a tremendous literature here, and and some of it is is very very good. And some of it is uh, popular uh, and 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 deeply flawed, uh, and and so there's uh, uh, there's an awful lot of material out there uh, about about the Jewish Holocaust, but there's much much less about uh, the fates of uh, of the non-Jews who were targeted, and there's there's much less uh, material about uh, the people who died in Asia uh, as a result of Japanese humanitarian abuses. And I, I think that uh, if we're going to study World War II and, and look at how Franklin Roosevelt reacted, we have to start with an understanding of, uh, yes, uh, uh, Hitler was killing people, uh, but also the Japanese were killing people. I, I think these are, uh, in, in, a, in a power sense, there, there's a relationship here. And uh, when, when you look at American resources, well, they were, they were split, and they, and they had to look at, at both cases uh, uh, you know, together. And now, certainly uh, in, the, in the 1930s, uh, a lot of attention was directed uh, toward Germany, toward what was happening to, uh, to the Jewish people in Germany. Uh, there have been a number of accounts that have suggested that it wasn't in the newspapers, uh, or if it was in the newspapers, it was in the back section. Well, still, uh, there were meetings in Madison Square Garden. There were protest meetings. There was uh, an, an embargo that people had started. Uh, that was as uh, a, a voluntary movement. People decided that they were going to stop buying German goods as long as the Germans were mistreating the Jews. And uh, so, so there was significant uh, uh, public understanding that something uh, uh, abhorrent was taking place in Germany toward uh, towards its Jewish population, and uh, and I think when we look at at, at the Holocaust, um, we uh, and and I would like to talk uh, in, instead of the Holocaust, I would like to say uh, Nazi racial policy because I, I think that's a better term. Mm-hmm. But when when we look at these events, 
you know, I, I think there's two things we should do. We should look at, uh, at, at the events that, you know, the, the policies that are directed towards uh, Jewish people in Europe as, uh, you know, as, as one group of policies and, and uh, you know, and, and the, the policies that are directed towards the non-Jewish people as, as a second set of policies, because in many ways they were two separate, uh, you know, there were two separate ideas floating around there. But at the same time, we have to recognize that they were linked in Nazi racial ideology. So they're 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 two you know different policies, but they are uh, intimately linked in the in the German understanding of of race. And, and that basic understanding was uh, you know the, the Germans had made a, a, a valuation of life, and and they decided that Aryans were the best people, and Jews uh, were uh, really uh, the worst people, kind of the the opposite of the Aryan, uh, bent on the destruction of uh, of all Aryans, and and you know trying to undermine them, seduce women, that that type of thing, and therefore were a danger uh, and had to be destroyed. And, and of course, there's uh, there's an evolution of this policy under under Hitler and and, and how it's imposed, uh, and the 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 so-called others. These were also people who were racial enemies, not necessarily because the the poles were uh, you know capable of, of seducing Germans and destroying them the way the uh, the way the, the Jews supposedly were, but uh, rather because there were so many and they were breeding so quickly that they were going to overwhelm the Germans. And so so the Germans, as they looked at World War Two, uh, you know Gerhard Weinberg tells us that you know the Germans fought two two separate wars in World War Two: the, the the military war and the racial war, and that the uh, the racial war was the the most most important of, of the two, and, and I think that's correct. Uh, as the Germans looked at the world, increasingly they looked at it in racial terms of people who had to be destroyed, and, and that includes the Jews, but it also includes uh, the people who lived east of Germany, uh, who who were not Aryans, and, and we're talking well over uh, 100 million people here. So, so we're talking about, as it evolves, a, a huge policy. I mean, this was uh, it's, it's been said the largest mass murder ever planned. Uh, certainly they get uh, uh, quite a ways down the road of, of carrying it out. Uh, but but as you look at German policy uh, and, the, and, the, and the Holocaust itself, so that is to say the, the Jewish side of German uh, racial policy, uh, you really do need to break this down in terms of rescue to the the pre-war period and then and then the war period. And so from 33 to the start of the war in 39, you have a situation where uh, the Germans are trying to expel the Jews more than than kill the Jews. And after uh, the start of war uh, in 39, you have a situation in which uh, the Jews are now, uh, for the most part, prisoners of Europe, and the Germans decide uh, eventually to uh, to kill them. And, and most of that takes place in the east, and most of uh, most of the dying takes place uh, after the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941. So, so very distinct phases. Now, uh, in the 1930s, before before we have war, there was an effort to uh, resettle the Jews of Germany. And, uh, and, and we would say greater Germany here. This, this would include uh, Austria as well. And uh, uh, if, you, if you look at the numbers, you're talking about somewhat less than 700,000 people. It's a sizable population. Uh, and by, by the start of the war, uh, about 164,000 people, uh, the Jewish people uh, in, in this case, were left within, within Germany. So, so most, of the, most of the Jews who lived in, in Germany uh, were able to get out of Germany. Now, many of them didn't want to go any farther than just over the border because they hoped uh, Hitler would fall from power and, and they would be able to return. But, uh, but the refugee problem, for the most part, was solving itself. Uh, not easily, uh, not in a, in a pretty way, but, but it was being solved. And uh, quite recently, 
uh, the uh, the diaries of James G. McDonald have been discovered and published by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And uh, one of the things that has come out, and McDonald was had been the High Commissioner for Refugees under the League of Nations and, and had been very active uh, in trying to find a solution to this refugee crisis. Uh, and, and what you find is uh, you know, McDonald, who knew uh, who knew Hitler, who knew Roosevelt, who knew Churchill, had worked with all these people. McDonald says that um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had a plan to resettle uh, not just the Jews of of Germany, but but the, the unwanted Jews uh, from the eastern parts of Europe. We're talking maybe nine million people here, uh, perhaps perhaps more. To uh, to the liberal democracies, so France, Great Britain, the United States, and and he saw this as a a long term issue uh, that required a long term solution, and and Roosevelt had had really been talking about doing much more uh, long term. The war, of course, uh, uh, interferes with these types of programs, and this is something that's strikingly new uh, in the in the literature. This is this is new evidence that that people are just starting to evaluate. Deborah Lipstadt, uh, quite famous uh, uh, for her work on the Holocaust, has said that this really overturns the, the consensus on Franklin Roosevelt and, and gets people to recognize that he wanted to do something to help the Jews. And I, and I think that's the case. Um, uh, now, Roosevelt, what did he do? Well, he, 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 uh, uh, you know, he put some pressure on, on Hitler after Kristallnacht. He uh, withdrew the American ambassador. Uh, he moved American defensive policy to one that was focused on Germany first. And uh, and he started building up America's military. The solution to the Holocaust, the solution to the death of the others, the solution to the deaths of uh, Japan's victims. Uh, and Japan was, uh, you know, by 1945, was claiming the lives of between 100 and 200 thousand civilians a month. Uh, the solution was the end of the war, and and that's what Franklin Roosevelt pushed. And uh, anything that would uh, interfere with the end of the war, well, he he tended to oppose. Uh, so that meant uh, things like the bombing of Auschwitz. You find American policy uh, didn't embrace those things. Uh, you know, uh, diverting resources to um, uh, to humanitarian rescue missions. Well. You know the the military in Europe was short on resources, bombers, trucks, transport ships. So so you find that Roosevelt uh, and his uh, and his policymakers typically uh, did not endorse those types of ideas. And uh, uh, you know so so you, you find that uh, if if you just look for this grand reaction, you don't find it. What was Roosevelt doing? He was winning the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and this was uh, uh, you know has been said by people perhaps as famous as Eleanor Roosevelt, who who said. This is how you stop the death of the Jews. And of course, Eleanor Roosevelt was uh, was a great fr- friend of minorities and and uh, and Jews, and and you know fought for women's rights. And she uh, she was no uh, you can't accuse her of being an anti semite anyway. She said, "How do you you know how do you do this? Well, you, you end the war as quickly as possible." Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was American policy. Uh, Roosevelt did. Uh, 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 helped to raise money, uh, and Americans raised over a billion dollars in charity in the Second World War. Uh, much of that was uh, was uh, uh, run through uh, um, uh, the, the National War uh, um, uh, Fund, which was uh, uh, you know Roosevelt mobilized everything during the war, including charity. Uh, the Red Cross also raised money, and and Roosevelt also helped to fund uh, the United Nations uh, Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. Uh, we spent 1.3 billion uh, during the war on that. So, so there were philanthropic efforts uh, here. The uh, the War Relief Board was set up by uh, 1944. Uh, many things were done, but they were done at, at the periphery. Uh, you don't find uh, this great call to go out and 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 save the people of uh, uh, you know from from the Germans and, and save the people from the Jews or, or excuse me from the, from the Japanese. But uh, uh, but you do find that that uh, as much as 
I think was really possible was being done. Uh, and uh, there was work that could be done at the periphery. And you do see a lot of activity, especially once the Allies start winning the war, you do see a lot of activity at the, at, on the periphery. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's where it would be successful. The Germans were simply too strong to, uh, to do what had taken place in, in Cuba or to do what had taken place in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire in the First World War. And, and it's, it's, it's a horrible cir- uh, circumstance, but, but that's the circumstance that, uh, that existed uh, that Roosevelt had to react to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Well, um, let's, let's move on uh, very briefly. Our time is running out. But let's move on to uh, the topic of post-war genocides and American responses yes. to them. Uh, the context has changed quite a bit because of uh, the emergence of the United States and the Soviet Union as superpowers, but also the uh, creation of the United Nations, uh, yes, which, was, yes. which was designed, at least to some degree, to try to prevent these things, that is to stop them before they started. Um, and here I'm speaking specifically about, I, I don't know if I can name them all, but uh, you know, we're talking about um, the Cambodian genocide, yeah. uh, and then um, the genocide in uh, Serbia and Kosovo, if we want to call it that, and uh, I suppose Saddam Hussein's genocide against the Kurds would, would yeah. count, um, and then uh, there's Sudan now, and uh, before Sudan, there was Somalia. I'm not quite sure what went on there. Um, how, how did America respond within the context of the United Nations and without the context of the United Nations to these, these affairs? The United Nations, um, you know, what, one of the things we should remember about the United Nations is that it, it is an institute of realpolitik. Uh, when, when you look at the Security Council and you see five permanent members with a veto power, uh, this is something that uh, you know uh, a Metternich or or a Bismarck would recognize uh, as as an institute of uh, of, of realpolitik. Um, now, can it accomplish uh, great good and great things? Yes, but but only when you can get those five powers to agree uh, to uh, to get involved. And and during the Cold War, that was a very very difficult thing to do. Now, <clears throat> during the uh, the Cambodian uh, uh, incident. Uh, where you have uh, a, a very uh, a significant uh, a portion of the Cambodian people being killed by uh, an agrarian communist movement uh, in in Cambodia, and, and really during the Cold War, it was uh, it was hard to call something uh, other than the Holocaust genocide because uh, because of some of the difficulties in in the literature. But uh, certainly by uh, by the end of the 1970s, people were starting to say, okay, uh, this this was another case of genocide, and and uh, very quickly people recognized this after the event ended, and uh, some people even started referring to it as as Holocaust too. Uh, so, so you have a, a, a horribly destructive event that is tied, uh, in many ways, to uh, to the war in Southeast Asia, to uh, to America's actions in Vietnam and Cambodia, and uh, certainly uh, the instability in the region helps uh, uh, Pol Pot, uh, the the head of the uh, uh, Red Cambodia Khmer Rouge, come to power. And, and this group uh, set out to uh, to eliminate uh, really the middle class uh, defined in a very extreme way. Uh, intellectuals, uh, uh, anyone who wore glasses, assume, they assumed they could read and, and were an intellectual. Uh, officers down to the rank of, of lieutenant. Uh, uh, you know, they, they emptied out the cities. They they put the the television sets and the cars in, in piles in the middle of the cities and set them on fire. I mean, th- this was a a very very extreme paranoid uh, regime. Uh, 
and uh, and it shut out reporters. It took several years for reporters to smuggle uh, 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 pictures out of Cambodia about what was taking place. So so you have a, a very difficult situation where uh, you know the the communists take over in Cambodia in 1975 as Americans uh, are starting to uh, recover from the Vietnam War, and there still is this uh, you know immediate aftermath of, of Vietnam where Americans don't want to get involved in another um, uh, war in Southeast Asia that includes uh, getting involved in Cambodia. And uh, so as Americans were, were, you know, just refusing to get involved militarily, uh, you find this event takes place and it, it lingers for a few years. Uh, United Nations uh, is, is not able to to bring itself to uh, really uh, do something here, although the United Nations uh, does uh, send uh, humanitarian relief to the borders of Cambodia so that uh, people who flee uh, were able to uh, uh, to survive. Uh, but you find that the UN d- uh, really doesn't have uh, the power to get involved here. Uh, and uh, the issue lingers for a few years. Uh, President Carter was put under some pressure to do something uh, something about it, uh, especially in the in the Democratic primary. But uh, the the issue is simply lingers. There were there were some reports in the American press, but this was uh, uh, this was a far left wing regime, and and uh, as as with the case of Stalin, it it is often difficult to uh, get pressure built uh, to do something against against the far left. Uh, and even today, we all we all recognize Hitler was a problem. Uh, fewer people recognize that Stalin or Lenin were were mass murderers, and and the same was the case with Cambodia. There were a, a number of reports, uh, as uh, as Ford uh, the, uh, said, uh, "Look, there's there's going to be a bloodbath in Cambodia." Uh, many people in the press said, "Well, can you really trust this administration to uh, uh, or, or Henry Kissinger? Can you really trust Henry Kissinger to uh, uh, with these things? Are they just trying to trick us into another war?" So so there's not a lot of American support to get involved in Cambodia. In fact, the opposite is true. There's there's a, a lot of support to stay out of Southeast Asia. And so it was, uh, again, another situation where uh, military involvement was all but impossible. And, um, uh, and, and so the event lingers. Now, eventually, the Cambodians became uh, so uh, revolutionary that they started attacking their, their neighbor, uh, Vietnam. And this did pro- provoke uh, an invasion from, uh, uh, from communist Vietnam, supported by the Soviets. Now, uh, some people have suggested that uh, a, a very small um, uh, force from from the West uh, could have simply pushed the you know the communists out of uh, out of power in Cambodia. But when the Vietnamese invaded, uh, they sent in an army of two hundred thousand men, supported by tanks and artillery. Uh, they used Soviet uh, airlift uh, support to uh, to move uh, food around, and the fighting lingered for years. So this this was a case where. There was uh, very little that could be done in terms of uh, a Western military force. America did send in charity. Uh, we attempted to uh, to work, especially once uh, you know Pol Pot was out of power. Uh, we started working with the communists in um, in Vietnam, uh, who were the real power brokers in the area, to uh, to let in some uh, some food, and eventually. Uh, the UN, uh, and, and this took years, eventually the UN was able to uh, put together a stable regime in the area and get the Vietnamese out. But this this was a crisis really without a solution that lingered for, for years and years. But and, and, I was yes. going to say, there is one thing that we did. I remember it from high school, actually. Um, this doesn't concern Cambodia so much as it does Vietnam. I think we accepted the United States, that is, uh, close to a million Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees Yes. In the late seventies, uh, they were in my high school. <laughs> yeah, Ger- yeah, Gerald Ford, 
uh, as a point of honor, uh, said these are people who fought with us uh, in the war, who put their lives on the line, uh, who are now uh, being targeted in part because of their uh, of their connection with the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ford made it a, a matter of national urgency to uh, to take in the boat people and, and help to resettle them here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and yeah, this this is something that ought not uh, be overlooked as as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's spend just a couple of minutes talking about the, the last uh, yeah. t- uh, two or three cases, and that would be the two cases I want to talk about are. Um, uh, uh, this business in Kosovo, and then um, yeah. finally uh, Sudan. Well, the the case that we have to talk about is in Somalia, because that sets, okay. the, that's that, that sets the tone for uh, the 1990s. And and uh, and I'll I'll just put it out there very briefly. Um, President uh, Herbert Walker Bush, uh, on on his way out of office, sent a humanitarian mission uh, at UN urging uh, into Somalia. Uh, and uh, its role was to uh, uh, provide, uh, you know, protection and, and stability for uh, for humanitarian missions. So, so they were supposed to take over the airports, take over the ports, uh, keep the uh, the militias from stealing food, and uh, not get involved in politics, and 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 set up an organization that would help. To uh, to feed the uh, people in Somalia, and uh, and that mission was uh, successful uh, for the most part. I mean, there, there were some there were some problems, but uh, after Bush left office uh, and uh, President Clinton came in, uh, uh, President Clinton uh, was uh, persuaded by uh, some officials at the UN, and uh, and I think um, uh, some people within his administration were were uh, predisposed to this idea to getting involved in uh, in nation building in Somalia, and so the American mission went from one of uh, uh, trying to stay out of the politics and providing protection for humanitarian workers and food depots to one where uh, we started um, uh, actively hunting down uh, one of the uh, the leaders of the militia uh, 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 and uh, uh, and getting involved in combat operations, state-building operations. So there's a very, very significant change in uh, in the mission away from simple peacekeeping to uh, perhaps peace enforcement or, or nation building. And um, uh, and this did not work out well. Uh, uh, much of the American combat force was withdrawn, and uh, 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 President uh, Clinton, who was uh, a, a liberal internationalist, uh, thought that uh, we could work with uh, you know some American troops, but then uh, we could rely on uh, United Nations forces for uh, for some of the muscle in Somalia, and uh, a, a force of American uh, uh, Rangers uh, and uh, uh, and special forces were uh, were um, uh, attacked. Uh, there was a loss of uh, you know significant loss of life, and and this really provoked the the Clinton administration to uh, uh, there were some recriminations that they didn't have the forces that the uh, the American military had asked for uh, in the country, and uh, the Clinton administration really backed off uh, deploying ground forces uh, in these uh, in these types of scenarios uh, in the future. And so, so Somalia, which started out uh, as, uh, as a great example of a limited humanitarian mission, turned into an example of, of what happens uh, when there's mission creep and, and what happens when you don't have clearly designed policies and, and where can things go, go wrong. So uh, Somalia today, of course, is, uh, is uh, still a mess. And uh, uh, the American forces left uh, as, as quickly as could be after, uh, uh, after this event. So this set the tone for, uh, for some of the events 
France in in uh, in the former Yugoslavia in uh, uh, in the uh, 1992 to 95 period, uh, and then again in uh, 1999 with uh, with the war in Kosovo, uh, and uh, the the Clinton administration was really hesitant to to get involved with with ground forces. Now in uh, in the former Yugoslavia, there was a a dramatic mistake. That was made. That has been made in in, in other cases since, and that is uh, in an effort to prevent the spread of the conflict. An arms embargo was imposed upon uh, uh, all of the states of uh, of the former Yugoslavia. Uh, the idea was, uh, you know, if if we don't let weapons go in, uh, you know, the, the war can't escalate. The, the mistake that was made was that uh, the the Serbs, uh, who had been uh, for the most part the, the dominant ethnicity in the in this multinational Yugoslav state, uh, had control of most of the weapons, uh, especially the heavy weapons of the old uh, uh, Yugoslav People's Army, and so uh, Serbs were in a position to uh, uh, to dominate, to drive out uh, the word that became or the phrase that became very popular in the 1990s was ethnically cleanse uh, some uh, uh, you know some of the other groups, uh, the Croats, uh, the Bosnian uh, Muslims uh, found themselves targeted, uh, and, and, and other groups did as well. The, the Kosovar Albanians were targeted, and so you you had this situation um, in. In which uh, the Bosnians, in, in particular, were were willing uh, and able to defend themselves, except they didn't have uh, uh, weapons, and the Serbs who did have weapons, uh, you know, attacked them, and uh, the Bosnians found that they didn't get the international support uh, to defend themselves, and so, so you have this this lingering um, uh, this lingering event. Now, Clinton uh, and uh, and through NATO uh, did authorize uh, the use of uh, of airstrikes. Uh, to defend some of these areas in in Bosnia, but uh, but commanders on the ground were very very hesitant to to get involved militarily. Eventually, the United Nations set up so called. Um uh, safe zones uh, that were um, uh, you know safe, safe havens where uh, UN forces were supposed to be protecting Bosnians from uh, from Serbs, and um, uh, most famously uh, there was one at, at Srebrenica, uh, which was overrun by the Serbs. Uh, the, the Dutch peacekeepers uh, did not uh, fight back. Uh, I, I've uh, I met one of them on an airplane one time. He said, "Well, what could we do? Uh, you know, there were there were not enough of us to to stop the Serbs." And uh, and this was a a tremendous failure of of international will. Uh, you know that no one had uh, been willing to put in uh, the ground forces necessary to protect uh, the people in these safe havens. Uh, uh, air power hadn't really been utilized, and eventually uh, this this would you know get NATO to start bombing the Serbs and to the point that there was a a political agreement worked out and uh, and we, and we moved on. But but we didn't move on very far because the the Serbians moved from really region to region and by uh, by 1999 1998 really uh, they had moved on to to Kosovo which was um, uh, the, the dominant ethnic group here uh, was uh, made up of Albanians who wanted to be part of Albania but there's a very real emotional connection to uh, to Serbia uh, for this area and and the Serbs began uh, ethnic cleansing the area uh, Americans uh, really pushed, and, and uh, General uh, General Clark uh, uh, was uh, very much involved in this. Americans pushed for uh, some type of, of intervention to protect the the Kosovo, uh, the Kosovar Albanians. Uh, Clark himself was in favor of deploying uh, some ground forces at at, at one point, uh, but the Clinton administration did not want to deploy ground forces. So we ended up with what was primarily an air campaign. And when the air campaign started. 
the uh, the ethnic cleansing uh, increased in pace. So you found that the Serbs recognized that they now had a limited time to meet their goals, and uh, and they they sped up the killing operation. So uh, in the end, it does uh, it does again force the Serbs to uh, agree to stop killing uh, the Albanians in this area. But it but it took over six weeks, and uh, uh, and in that time, uh, uh, countless thousands were were killed, uh, uh, raped, um, you know, tortured. So so not not a very satisfying result and it it illustrates again that it's very difficult to use military force uh in in these areas mm-hmm. and then uh sudan sudan uh which is a festering problem um Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell, uh, you know uh, stunned many people when he went public and said it no it's it's genocide and uh, uh, part of the reason why he did that was because uh, uh, some of the people working at the uh, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington uh, had access to to satellites, and they had studied uh, uh, using satellite images. They had studied uh, the area, and they they went to the Bush administration, and they uh, they showed before and after pictures. Oh and boy! Yeah, and you could see missing villages. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, I talked to one of the individuals involved, uh, and he said this had a very uh, a dramatic impact on President Bush, and and uh, you know, and the, the administration then um, uh, went forward here. But uh, again, the difficulty, uh, and and a number of groups are calling for uh, some type of Western military intervention in in Sudan uh, to uh, to protect uh, to protect the innocents here. But but the question is, uh, you know, how is that going to work uh, if you use um, American forces and uh, the height of the killing, of course, uh, corresponded uh, roughly with uh, the worst time that Americans were having in Baghdad uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of the insurrection and, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the loss of American lives. Uh, if we had decided to deploy forces into uh, another uh, you know, a country with a, with a large Muslim population, uh, what we probably would have done was provoked uh, a, a tremendous response against, against the American military. So, so this would not have been uh, terribly helpful. Uh, if we avoided uh, Western Christian uh, militaries, if we had uh, you know, looked for uh, some type of African peacekeeping force, well, these are forces that are very much limited and uh, uh, not really designed for uh, uh, the, the type of uh, control operations, you know, c- controlling geography, keeping out, uh, keeping out opposing forces that would be required to uh, really separate the combatants. And, that, and that's really what you need in, in uh, Sudan, uh, some type of physical separation, you know, that, that you stay over there, we'll stay over here, and there's a, uh, some type of armed force in between. Well, the African, uh, uh, m- most African states don't have militaries capable of doing that, and uh, there have been a number of fiascos with uh, African forces uh, uh, abusing children and, and raping so, women in, uh, in, under UN auspices in, in recent years. So this is another case that, that has not been uh, easy to solve. Now, Secretary of State Clinton has been active in uh, uh, working with uh, the refugee camps and and trying to get uh, some type of international UN protection for uh, for refugee camps uh, in uh, in Sudan and, and getting food in. And, and, uh, and I think that is a, a good 
place to start. Uh, some some soft diplomacy uh, will save the lives of those who can be reached, while we figure out the longer term issue of of getting uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the government in in that area to to change its policies and mm-hmm. and and find a long term solution. So mm-hmm. uh, again, it's another case where uh, there's just not an easy solution, and, and that's that's the uh, you know that's what I come back to again and again and again. We have to remember what's possible. Uh, maybe the right thing to do would be to uh, mobilize a force and and put it in there, uh, but. Uh, to do that, we would need uh, a very sizable force. It would have to be very carefully planned out, uh, and without the uh, uh, without the cooperation of the people on the ground, it could be very problematic. And if we commit those resources in that region, well, uh, there are other areas that could use those resources as well. So, so then you get into the to the question of where do we go? What do we do? And uh, hopefully, we don't spread uh, you know uh, d- disrupt areas and and cause uh, greater problems that mm-hmm. already already exist. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you one. Uh, I guess it's a kind of controversial uh, question uh, before I let you go. Um, and that is this. Uh, no one really likes the uh, the Gulf War, that is Gulf War One, or especially Gulf War Two. No, no one really likes the fact that we have invaded and kind of taken over Iraq. But uh, if you are uh, Samantha Power or Michael Walser and you think that Americans uh, should prevent uh, genocide uh, – ongoing genocide or genocide that might happen, isn't in fact Gulf War II what that looks like? I mean, isn't it in fact the case that that's what you have to do? Well, I mean, take over a country and occupy it? Because that did do it. I mean, you know, there's no more Saddam and uh, the Iraqis are no longer uh, a threat to the – well, they are a threat to the Kurds, but there's no ongoing genocide. Well, yes and no uh, is uh, is the answer there. Uh, You know, hopefully – it doesn't take uh, an invasion to uh, change the policy of of some of these states, and uh, you know. And I think if you look at um, the the Russo-Turkish War uh, that that came uh, um, in uh, the 1870s uh, over uh, the Bulgarian horrors, mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, that you can you can do just mathematically, and, and I don't know if this is is morally correct, but it's certainly mathematically correct. Uh, if you uh, if you look at how many people, how many civilians died as a result of the war, uh, and then compare it to how many civilians died before the war uh, as a result of genocidal type activities, you'll find that uh, you know uh, going to war increased the number of people who died. Uh-huh. And and I don't know if that's the calculus that we want to follow, but it's certainly something we should be aware of. And sometimes uh, in uh, when you look at these genocidal states, uh, and and you say, okay, they've killed ten thousand, let's let's go get them. Uh, you have to do the math and say, well, well, maybe there's a better policy to pursue. And I don't know where the number cutoff is. You say, okay, now you're up to twenty thousand. That's too many, or thirty thousand. We just can't do it anymore. But, but hopefully, there are ways to stop um, to stop genocidal uh, type activities, to stop humanitarian abuses short of war, uh, because war is a very dangerous mm-hmm. thing. And when when you look at the invasion of Iraq, that that's the cautionary tale here. Uh, once America w- went to war, it found that it couldn't really control events anymore, and it it almost spiraled uh, out of control in a very horrible way. Mm-hmm. And and now that the withdrawal is uh, withdrawal is taking place, it, it it may do so again. I mean, mm-hmm. so so there's a very dangerous uh, thing to do here. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at um, a leader like Saddam Hussein, who is, uh, as Henry Kissinger would say, an international revolutionary, you can't, you can't sign an agreement with this fellow and, and have him stick to it. Uh, he's, he's, uh, uh, he's always going to try to revise the status quo in some way. Uh, if you have someone like a Hitler, if you have someone uh, uh, you know, like uh, 
uh, Muammar Gaddafi, maybe you can work with him. But as, as you look at these leaders and you say, okay, here are humanitarian abuses, uh, and uh, let's let's have a meeting of the minds and say you got to stop doing that. Well, with with Adolf Hitler, who is deeply committed to these things, that moment's not going to come. Mm-hmm. With uh, Saddam Hussein, the chances of that moment coming were were limited as well. So you have to look at the person. Stalin is another uh, another example there. Can you really influence his policy? And so in that case, uh, if, if you really want to get involved and stop it, it, it might mean war. And, and that war might be very ugly. Uh, hopefully we can stop these things short of that uh, but, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, if you said today, uh, you know, hey, maybe what we should have done is, is overthrown Hitler in 1933, you'd get a lot of people agreeing with you. But in 1933, what you would find is uh, people say, well, why Hitler? You know, <laughs> St- Stalin's the problem, yeah. you know, and and uh, Hitler, you know, he was elected democratically, even mm-hmm. if he gets rid of democracy. So you find that, uh, you know, th- these are very, very difficult decisions to make. And there there is, you know, uh, there is a calculus that uh, uh, State Department uh, people people have to look at to say, okay, uh, yes, there is a, a great moral wrong here. Uh, uh, should we do something about it? Uh, okay, well, what are the choices? And invasion's got to be on the list, but but hopefully uh, it's, it's on a list in, in a way that uh, is, is is rational. And uh, and, and I don't want to criticize, uh, uh, you know, the, the Iraq war uh, completely. Uh, I think there is a humanitarian dynamic there, but uh, but I don't think it was necessarily the dynamic that uh, that caused the Bush administration to invade. Uh, but certainly there's there is a humanitarian dynamic there. And, and you're right. If uh, if we look at, uh, you, you know, if um, it, you know, if, if uh, Vermont starts, uh, you know, uh, massacring people, uh, would we would we want to occupy Vermont? I mean, how many uh, farmers with shotguns would, uh, yeah. would be standing on roadside barricades? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so this is a problem, yeah. and uh, you know, this this is a very real problem. So, uh, yeah, yeah, the the answer is is yes. That is, the, you know, if we're going to invade and take over a country, we had better be ready for a long term occupation, and we had better be prepared for uh, for for resistance from a domestic population that that might think that we're the crazy ones uh and uh you know if you go on the internet and look up casualties uh civilian casualties for the uh for the iraq war uh one of the things that you'll find is that you know you can say okay saddam hussein's gone so he's not killing the kurds and he's not killing uh you know the other groups in this country uh but there are groups on the internet who argue that uh uh you know the war has caused uh, you know the the american occupation has caused more civilian death than saddam hussein ever would have uh, I don't know that their numbers are correct. I suspect that they are. Uh, they are not. I think there's a political viewpoint there, but but still, you 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 have to you have to do that calculus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have to add the numbers up and see if it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And and hopefully you come up with uh, a, a policy that can that can end the killing. I mean, because because that's what you want in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, does ending the killing mean uh, you, you know you you invade and you grab the guys who are responsible and you put a rope around their neck and put them on trial? Uh, not always. I mean, some sometimes it's better to to leave them in power and just stop the killing. But, but these are, these are very, very tough decisions mm-hmm. to make, I think. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it case by case. Right. Keith, you know what? <clears throat> I think that they should put you on the national security council. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you'd want the job, <laughs> but, but it sounds to me like, uh, well, you certainly know a lot about these things and what you say uh, rings very true to, to me. And I want to thank you for being on the show. And very briefly, I want to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history and, uh, that is, uh, what are you working on now in 30 seconds or a minute? 
Well, uh, what I'm working on now very quickly is uh, uh, two things. They both relate to American policy in 1898. Uh, I've just signed a contract with uh, Rutledge for, uh, for a book on the Spanish-American War that mm-hmm. focuses uh, certainly on the humanitarian aspect. And also I'm, uh, I, I'm working on an article that argues that the, uh, the Spanish-American War ought to be thought of as uh, in, in the context of military humanitarian intervention. Hmm. So. So that's that's really the uh, the angle I'm working on right now. In the future, I want to spend more time working on uh, these philanthropic groups, these the state associated philanthropy that that my book talks about, because I think that's one of the things that's really uh, new and interesting that needs to be added to the historical narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, those sound like terrific projects, and I look forward to reading them myself. Uh, Keith Pamakwe, thank you very much for being on the show, uh, and uh, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you, Marshall. All I right, appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Keith Pamakwe about his book, Helping Humanity, American Policy and Genocide Rescue. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.